David Howarth, Professor of Law and Public Policy. Simon Deakin, Professor of Law. Thank you both, David and Simon, for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today at our Hinkley Point C Revisited Public Policy Workshop. David, if we start with you and that controversial but final signing of the Hinkley C contract between EDF Energy and the Chinese firm... Was it a good deal? Well, it still remains to be seen. The The contract is an extraordinarily long one. You know, assuming that building the nuclear power stations involved take five years at the very least, it might take double that, and the contract itself is for 35 years after that, then we're talking, you know, 40 years' time. And only then will you be able to say, looking back, whether it was really worth it. And there are parts of the contract that last for 60 years. That's the expected length of the life of the, the power station. And it's a very open-ended deal where the way in which money goes in from electricity consumers depends on the price of electricity at the time over those 35, in fact, in some ways, over 60 years. And so if the price of electricity remains low, then lots of money goes to EDF or EDF subsidiary, who's the generator, because that's the way the deal works. And if the price of electricity goes very, very high, then it works the other way, and the consumers, as represented by the market company, will gain. And so since we have really no idea what the price of electricity is going to be in 40 or 60 years' time, you can't really judge how it's going to work out. A lot of people, though, suspect that the price of electricity is going to be a lot lower than the price that's the the so-called strike price in the contract. And on that basis, then it's going to cost customers, consumers quite a lot. And does it have any implications for the future of public policy, so-called PFI builds in other sectors, health, education? Does this set a, a precedent? Well, in a way, it's an extraordinarily long and expensive version of a PFI contract. I doubt whether it sets a precedent in, in, for, for other PFI contracts because it is so exceptional, because the burdens on the government over such a long period are so great, and the potential liability of the government is in the tens of billions. There's nothing really like it in, in the ordinary PFI contract about schools or, or hospitals. Brexit, how does that affect the signing of this contract? Well, Brexit, when it happens, would change quite a bit of the contract. And the contract kind of takes into account some of those problems so that Britain, if if we're no longer part of the single market, then the regulation around subsidy will be different. And there's provision in the contract for stopping the contract if it becomes illegal because of those kind of rules. But of course, if we're still in the single market, then it makes no difference at all. And it's also possible, there was some short discussion about this, that if there's judgment by the Court of Justice of the European Union against this contract, before we leave the, the union or the single market. I think people are assuming that that judgment wouldn't apply after we leave, but it's not impossible that it might still apply. So there's a good deal of uncertainty around the way the contract works with or without Brexit. Simon, are you concerned about the actual contract itself rather than the wider point of whether we should be having more nuclear energy or not? What is it about this Hinkley C contract that caused Theresa May to halt it, look over it, pour over it, get the Chinese back, then she signed it? Is the contract difficult? The the contract's very long-term. Things may change. As David was explaining, the price of energy may fall because renewables are successful, that the background law may change. All, All these are problems. The issue we really have to think about here is why did we need this complex contract? Why did we need Chinese investment? Why do we need EDF and a major Chinese state-owned enterprise to build the nuclear power station? 30 or 40 years ago, the British government would have organised this itself. We had the capacity to build nuclear power stations, and going back to the 1950s, we were the first country to build them. 
we no longer have that capacity. So to some degree, these risks are unavoidable. Then the other risk is there's a political risk. We organise the negotiations over a contract such as this in a way that alienates French and Chinese partners whom we need to build the power station. So leaving aside all the ar arguments which are maybe very powerful arguments against any sort of new nuclear build, but assuming we, we need this nuclear capacity, we haven't gone about it in exactly the right way. Now, the immediate pretext given for delaying the signing of the contract was were national security concerns. I can't really comment on that, but it does seem to me that the process by which we first of all designed the contract in this way, engaged with EDF, then engaged with Chinese investors and construction companies, and then engaged with overseas governments, was somewhat less than satisfactory. A 10-year process, David, that didn't cover the British government in glory? Well, the 10-year process was mainly with French companies and, uh, and indirectly with the French government. The Chinese investment only appears later. The process, in, in a way, is inevitable if you're going to do something this complex in this way. One of the questions that we've been asking both this time and last time was whether this contractual structure is the one you have to do. And all contractual structures shift risk about, and the risk here is partly on electricity consumers, and it's partly on British government, but it's also partly on EDF and the investors, because they're, they're the ones who take the risk of the contract not being legally solid. So there are all sorts of different risks involved. Whichever way you do one of these deals, someone has got to face these risks. You can move them so that different people have the financial risk, different people have the legal risk, but you can never eliminate all risk. Will we, Simon, see the Hinkley Point C come on stream? Will it actually supply electricity to British consumers at whatever price. It's 30 years down the line. There are a lot of unknown unknowns. Surprisingly at the workshop today, a number of people thought that we may not see Hinkley Point finished, not because it's being run by the French or Chinese, but just because there may be technological problems, there may be security problems with nuclear accidents elsewhere. That then has a knock-on effect for Bradwell and size will see. Yes, yeah, so there are lots of issues about the particular technology involved here and whether it's possible to build this reactor because efforts to build similar, well, the same model elsewhere in Finland and France have run into difficulties. So these other risks have to be added to all the other ones that we've been discussing. Now, whether Hinkley Point C will ever get built and whether it will produce electricity remains to be seen. It seems to me more likely than not that the project will go ahead because so much political effort has been invested in getting it to this point. So I, I think it will proceed. And then the question is, is it the first of many new nuclear bills or will it be a one-off? And we heard both views today. There were people who would see nuclear power as gradually winding down as renewables become more important. Other people argue that renewables can't fill this gap. We will need something like Hinkley Point. And maybe not just that, maybe up to 10 similar nuclear builds are needed, even if renewables are successful. We don't know. So in this workshop, we're considering different scenarios. And all we can really say at this point is that there are a number of scenarios. One would be a much expanded nuclear build programme. Another one would be this is actually the last gasp, in a way, of the power in the UK. We don't know what the comes are, but I suspect those are the two main ones to consider. David, just finally, do you agree that perhaps Hinkley C may be our last gasp at nuclear energy, that we're not actually going through a so-called nuclear renaissance and the future of Bradwell and Sires will see is still in the balance? 
The future of Sizewell and Bradwell certainly is still in the balance. The history of nuclear power in Britain is one of a boom and bust, that everyone thinks that at one stage there are going to be lots of nuclear power stations, we build one or two, then enthusiasm wanes. And then nuclear puts itself forward as a solution to a different problem, you know, moving from cost of electricity to, say, climate change. Enthusiasm builds again, lots of very complex deals are done, and then maybe one or two are built, and then enthusiasm wanes again, especially because of changes elsewhere in the energy market. So as the cost of other forms of energy falls, especially in the renewable sector, the attraction of nuclear as a relatively inexpensive way of doing carbon reduction will start to uh, fade because other ways of of doing that become relatively less expensive. And then the next question is, well, will nuclear come back in a new phase to say that it's a solution to a different problem? And the problems that will face Britain in the next 10, 20 years, climate change will obviously still be there as a massive global problem, but will we have a government in Britain that thinks that? And will they think maybe that national security problems or diplomatic isolation is a big problem too? And can the nuclear industry represent itself as a solution to the problems of the next 20 years in a way that it represented itself? as a solution to problems that we became more aware of in the past 20 years. Right, so the jury's out. It's out on our short-term and long-term nuclear future. And it depends on events. Well, events are the essence of political life. And policy in this area, energy policy, has never been very coherent. Now, I'm surprised for you to align it so closely with politics. The main problem in energy policy is deciding what your main objective is. Is your main objective to have cheap power for consumers or for industry or for both? Is your main aim environmental climate change? Is your main aim political, diplomatic, security of supply? Or is your main aim just to keep continuity of supply, just keep the lights on? Or or is your policy to make sure that people aren't in fuel poverty? We never quite decide the order of importance of those policy aims. And because we keep changing our minds about them, energy policy is never stable. Energy policy not stable. What final word to you, Simon? Andrew Blowers said he thought, in terms of our energy policy at nuclear, the emperor had no close. David Lowry agrees, do you? I, I think, as David says, there's a long been a lack of consistency here. But there may be a wider issue about whether the UK can plan strategically and take evidence appropriately into account, not just in this area, but across a range of other public policy contexts. So one of the things we're trying to do, the work of the Strategic Research Initiative on Public Policy, is to understand the policymaking process better and to understand how policymaking is done in Britain and how it's done in other countries. Yes, because in Germany, they're not going to go ahead with nuclear. Germany made a big decision to decommission a lot of nuclear plant. Japan, despite experiencing the Fukushima disaster, hasn't gone down that route. What will be interesting in future is to understand better the way in which policymaking is done in other countries. And today we had hints of that, and I think we need to explore that further. Simon Deacon, David Howard, thank you very much indeed for talking to our podcast series for the Centre for Business Research on the Hinkley Point C Revisited Public Policy Workshop. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie.